We're going to kick off a new study today. Listen, there's a lot of ways to study the Bible. Uh, you can do a word study. You can study a phrase. You can study doctrine. A lot of guys love systematic theology. That's where you take a doctrine, whether the word for that doctrine's in the Scripture or not. You say, well, if it isn't in the Scripture, then it's not biblical. Well, okay, we, we got the rapture and we have the trinity and you won't find those words in the Bible but systematic theology takes these scriptures and puts them together and we're able to make conclusions and even some secondary level deductions from that and that's kind of systematic theology and that's great and has a wonderful place again topical studies don't you get what I'm about to say the best way to read your Bible and the best way to study your Bible is the way God wrote it one book at a time I'm not saying you're not in a book in the Old Testament and a book in the New Testament. I'm not saying that. I'm saying whatever you do, don't just hop, skip, and jump around when you're reading the Bible. Be in a book and work your way through. You say, why is that the superior way? Because that's going to help you get the best interpretation of what God is saying in the Scripture because you're going to stay in context. You understand? When you're reading your Bible or 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 studying the Bible, you go this far and then you pick up where you left off and you go this far and you know what you have been reading and you're going to make the right interpretation which should then help lead to the right applications of Scripture. One of the reasons I favor expositional study, you know, working through a book of the Bible, I favor that is because it's going to keep you from going to just the, the little honey spots that you like and the doctrines that you favor And it's going to keep you, you know, from just dodging the difficult areas. And it's going to force you to study the whole counsel of God. I have a goal. I'll never reach it. I would love to teach and preach through every book of the Bible. This is the first one we're going to kick off here since I've been here. I've been here five months now. We've not done an expositional study. Uh, We're getting ready to kick one off. And you say, oh, we'll probably be in in Romans for a few weeks, won't we? (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, I hope you do not get sick of Romans, but this is not something you do in a few weeks. You say, well, why Romans? Of all the books, and they're all, I mean, 66, every one of them are inspired. They're all profitable. But it's been said, don't you catch this, if you're right on Romans, you'll be right on about every other book of the Bible. If you miss it on Romans, you're going to be off on every other book. Now, this is not everything in the Bible. It's not all in this one book. But a lot of it is, and this has ties to so many things. You'll be right on Romans, you'll be right on the Scripture. Being right on this book, listen to me, it'll give you an aid in, catch these three things, right thinking, right feeling, right doing. It'll help you spot false teachers and wrong action and behavior. It'll help correct you of that if you get right on the book of Romans. This thing's 2,000 years old, but it's always been modern in every area it's been written. It was modern in 300 when St. Augustine got saved. He wasn't a saint before he got saved. He was an immoral man, a burden to his mother, but he heard the book of Romans and he got saved. In the 1500s, a gentleman by the name of Martin Luther was studying the book of Romans and it led to his salvation. In the 1700s, a gentleman by the name of John Wesley, because of the book of Romans, got saved. I dare say, I don't know if this is a fact, I feel confident in saying more people have been brought to Christ through the book of Romans than any other book, maybe every other book combined. I know John's in there as well. This is the book we're getting ready to head into. I will not do it justice. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that. You say, I wonder what kicked off the Protestant Reformation, Romans. So I wonder what led to the Wesleyan revivals that swept through England under John Wesley, the book of Romans. Always appropriate. Would you join me in Romans chapter 1? We're going to read seven verses. And let me tell you as you're turning there how we're going to kind of break this down. We're going to have a portion. I'll read this, the passage in a, sec, in a second. We're not going to cover all seven verses today. We'll probably come back and Lord willing try to cover the first seven verses next week. Today I do want to cover verse 1. And that'll be, the, that'll be kind of the message. But we're going to have a lengthy introduction because we're kicking off a book. Do we have a thing that uh, maybe the next slide. It will probably show you some of the things we're going to look at this, this morning. So as you see these topics popping up. We're going to hit those kind of quickly 
the author will spend a little more time on. I think the recipients will spend some more time on and the key themes. Some of these other ones, we're going to hit them, keep moving quickly. But this will all be by way of introducing the book. And some of you say, that's not really my thing. I'm, I've already prayed that the Lord will give you an interest in wanting to know these things. And then as we look at those seven things, then we'll go back and read verse 1 again. And we'll bring out some things about the, the, the Apostle Paul out of verse number 1. But I'm, for now, I want to read verses 1 through 7. Here's what I want you to do, okay? Don't picture a church building, but picture a house church when this letter, a scroll, was first delivered. And it was first read by whoever read it in the first house church there in Rome. And I'm going to go and tell you, you, I know that in our minds we get kind of geared toward an hour, hour and a half service. I'm going to read seven verses. They would not have gotten together. Hey, get together, guys, and we're going to read this far next week. They probably would have read all 16 chapters at one time. So kind of put yourself there. You've never heard this before. There's a man named Paul who says he's an apostle of Jesus, and he's delivered a letter, and it's going to be read to us, and we need to hear its teachings. So go back there. You're in the, you're in the 50s, not 1950s. You know, it's not leather and rolled-up jeans and white T-shirts and slick-back James Dean hair, Okay. This is the first 50s back in the first century. And we've met together. And here's what the leader of our group stands and reads. Here's what he reads. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the author of this book? And you guys have a handout. And the first thing we'll t talk about first, the author of this book is obviously, as stated in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul. I think we'll have a map on the screen. One of the things I want us to know, and there's so many things we could talk about the Apostle Paul. And In fact, the message today will be going into this a little bit more. But if you'll look, you see where it says Asia Minor on that map? Go over to the right-hand side of that. We call that Turkey today. You see that section west of Asia Minor, Greece, and you see Corinth. That's going to come into play in a moment. And then you see on over there, you see Italy and Rome. So this letter is written to the church at Rome. And remember the map there in the middle. Remember Corinth in a second. But look over far to the right, and you'll see Cilicia was a region in Asia Minor. And there's a city called Tarsus. You've heard of that, and that's where Paul was born. And that's a very important piece of information. Paul was born in Tarsus. You say, well, Tarsus, don't really know a lot about it. Have you ever heard of Athens, Greece? You say, yeah, I've heard of Athens. Have you ever heard of Alexandria, Egypt? You're like, yes, they have the great library, center of learning. Athens, the great philosopher. Alexandria, Egypt, the great libraries. Listen, Tarsus in all the Western world was ranked in the top three places if you wanted the best of the best of the liberal arts education and a, philo and, and a philosophical education, mathematics, rhetoric, grammar, languages, one of the top three places in the world, you would go to Tarsus. So the point I want to get across is Paul is born in a college, university town of higher, higher learning and higher culture. He was born, apparently, all signs indicate, about the same time, I'm not saying December 25th, but I'm saying around the same time as Jesus was born. So let this sink in. While the Messiah of the Jews and the Christ and the Anointed One of God is being born over in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem, 
the second greatest human influence in the history of the church was also being born over in Turkey. So whatever you think of when you think of Turkey, 99.8% Muslim today, whatever you think of Turkey, just know that it produced the great apostle Paul. I want to go back to that education for a second. What kind of family was Paul born into? He says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He says, my, what he's saying there is my mom was a Jew, my dad was a Jew, but my dad's not just a Jew. He's a Pharisee, the strictest order of Jews. They know the Bible, they study the Bible, they try to live out the Bible. That's the home that, that Paul is born into. His dad's a Jew, his dad's a Pharisee. And his dad, get this, this is important, I won't touch on it a lot, but his dad was a Roman citizen. Why is this man a Roman citizen? Not really sure. All I know is Paul is born as a Roman citizen because his dad had obtained Roman citizenship and that's a very valuable thing, something you would have wanted to have. What kind of education does this man have? It's going to be important. He gets the best liberal arts education a young man can have in his hometown of Tarsus. I'm going to step out. I'm going to make a guess. I think Paul came from a well-to-do family. He gets the best education, again, in philosophy, mathematics, all the great writers. He studies that as a young boy, and he's at the grind. Brilliant. By the time we get to this, through this book, you'll realize he is a genius. Literally, he would test off the charts. He's smarter than anyone in this room. He has great intellect. He's getting the best training there is. Then, apparently, somewhere around 12, 13, 14 years old, his family well-to-do and having Jewish roots and his dad being a Pharisee probably has connections because it seems he goes down to Jerusalem and there he's going to be taught by the highest-ranking rabbi, a man by the name of Gamaliel. They didn't have the New Testament, but if you want to know what the Bible, the Old Testament, meant, you would learn by Gamaliel. And he only has a certain amount of students. Paul was one of them. Paul is the rising star in Judaism. He has the best liberal arts education. He has the best education in the Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you, he has the best education a human being could get because after he gets saved, Jesus pulls him aside and takes him out into the desert and for three years personally tutors Paul. Peter even admits, Paul knows doctrine and things that none of us know. Paul says, I did not get my doctrine from flesh and blood. I didn't go to school. I learned it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ out in the desert so you talk about an educated man this is what we have here's a man well versed in the Greek language praise the Lord New Testament is written in Greek very descriptive very precise here's a man who is a Roman citizen Greek language Roman citizen and he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews he has a foot in these three cultures that's the man God uses now here's, here's the point when God calls you he equips you you say well I'm not Paul I'm not either but whatever God is calling you to do, he has equipped you and is equipping you to do. God equipped him to be Paul. Second thing, very quickly, what, what is the date? What is the place of writing? Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. I told you that a while ago. Kind of mark that. That's in Greece. And he writes it at the end of his third missionary journey. Those of you here on Christmas Day or even before... Uh, it was another time. I touched on 2 Corinthians where Paul was doing this collection of money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Some of you remember that? Remember they were doing this collection and he's going to take it. So he writes 2 Corinthians telling the Corinthian church, hey, be doing this collection like the Macedonian churches and I'm going to come down there and we'll finish that collection and then I'm going to take it back to Jerusalem. This is the time. Paul is in Corinth. He's correcting some things. They've been questioning his apostleship. He kind of has to give some rebuke, smooth things over, teaches them some more. He's getting the collection. And in the middle of all that ministry, oh, by the way, he writes Romans. That's what's happening. The time period's around A.D. 57, 58. You want to remember that date for about 8 or 10 minutes from now. A.D. 57, 58, he's writing the book of Romans from Corinth. Who are these recipients? Number three, who are the recipients here? We don't know for sure. But it appears the church at Rome was probably begun as a group of house churches begun by Jewish Christians. And I'm going to need to talk about this note for just a second. So the church at Rome founded by groups of Jewish Christians returning home from the events of Pentecost that are described in Acts 2. Can I describe that just for a second? And I don't just put our, I know you say, man, this is kind of academic and we're going to get to some other things in just a little bit, but this is important. How did this church start? Some of you know the history of Graceview. I've, I've heard the history of Graceview. Some of you live the history of Graceview. How did the Roman church start? Here's apparently what happened. 
You know the Jews had these feasts, right? Three times a year. They have Passover, Pentecost, and then they have the Feast of Tabernacles and booths in the fall. So they have Passover, March, or April. Late March, early April. Then they have Pentecost in May or June. Watch this. Devout Jews from all around the world would come to at least one of those every year. And sometimes multiple times they would make a trip to Jerusalem because they're good Jews. And they'd make sacrifices and they'd celebrate with God's people. Even if they lived in other countries, they made their way there. Here's what happened. There's a special uh, Passover in which everyone would have left going back to their homes saying this. Hey, come back out. Hey, honey, how'd Passover go? Honey, it was great. You're not going to believe it. You know the healer that they've been talking about? Yeah, yeah, what was his, uh, yeah, like everyone says, like he legitimately healed people. Yeah, not only that, did he like, some say he raised the dead. Yeah, he raised the dead. They killed him. What? They killed him. Our leaders turned him over to the Romans, and the Romans went along with it. They crucified him on a cross. But honey, here's the kicker. The last thing, as we were leaving town, there's this buzz that they couldn't find his body. And his followers are saying he's risen from the dead, and he said he was going to rise from the dead. It's crazy. I don't know what's happening. That's March, April. That's Passover. So what happens after that? Well, they come back in May or June. And then they're going to come back home. Hey, honey, how did Pentecost go? Honey, sit down. You ain't going to believe it. The Messiah has come. The one they killed is a Savior. Well, if he's the Messiah, shouldn't the Holy Spirit accompany that according to the Bible? Yeah, the Holy Spirit came down. And he's now in me. What? And these people bring their faith back to Rome and they begin to have these churches and that's the founding of the church of Rome. You say, well, that's not what I've heard. The Roman Catholic Church says Peter started the church at Rome and he's the first pope. And all the other popes are descending from Peter as the pope. I'm going to offer to you that's not true. You say, why? Number one, there's no biblical evidence for that. Number two, catch this. In the book of Romans, Paul is going to write and address by name. He's going to greet and give salutations. Tell this one, hey. Tell that one, hey. You know, tell that one to keep it up and keep the faith. He's going to list 28 people. It's like I could go right now and say, hey, tell so-and-so, hey, tell so-and-so. If I were writing a letter, 28 different people by name. He doesn't list Peter. What a slap in the face for one apostle not to name another apostle. If he knows he's the pastor of that church. Peter was not the pastor of the church. Second, third thing is this. Romans 15 verse 20 is a phrase. Paul says, I do not build on another man's foundation. You say, what does that mean? Some of you are going to build a house. You've got a slab. You've got your footers. I will not come and build on your foundation, the house that you've laid out. What Paul is saying is, I'm a missionary. I plant seed and I start churches in cities that don't have churches. So here's my point. If, if Peter founded the church at Rome, then why would Paul be wanting to go and have an influence on Roman, the Roman church, he'd say, Peter's got that covered. But apparently it was not founded by an apostle. And so Paul is writing to help a young church not founded by an apostle, struggling to get its identity and its footing. And that's why we have the book of Romans. Number four, what is the theme? What are the themes? I'm going to give you a definition. It'll be on the screen, but we're going to follow it with some other key themes. I believe the overarching theme of Romans is this, especially the first 11 chapters, but then this flows from that. Here it is. God, by the way, I'm going to say every word of this sentence is extremely important. Every single word. God justifies guilty, condemned sinners by grace alone. That's his part. Through faith in Christ alone. You say, that's what the book of Romans is about? That's what the book of Romans is about. God justifies guilty, condemned sinners by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. For a moment, I want to just, and these are going to come up like popcorn. They're not going to be in your handout. I want to offer some other lesser but continuous themes. Let's hit these very quickly, and they're borrowed from the ESV Study Bible. I have an ESV study Bible, and I was reading this. I'm like, man, I got to... If I were preaching the whole book of Romans in one sitting, these would be the key points. Number one, say, sounds like we've already heard this. Well, this is what the book's about. All people are sinners. Therefore, all, without exception, need to be saved from their sins. Number two, the Mosaic Law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Though good and holy, it's good. It is holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. The only problem is it cannot counteract the power of sin. 
It's great, but we're not. Number three, through the righteousness of God, sin is judged and salvation is provided. Number four, with the coming of Christ, his first advent, the former age of redemptive history has passed away and the new age of redemptive history has begun. The next one, the atoning death of Jesus Christ is central to God's plan of salvation. I hope I don't have this wrong. But I think a gentleman by the name of John Piper says, the cross of Jesus Christ is the blazing center of the glory of God. It's the cross. Everything flows to and from the cross. All the Old Testament's pointing to the cross. Everything since then is pointing back to the cross and the resurrection. Next point. Again, you saw it earlier in our main overarching theme. Justification is by faith alone. Another theme is this one. There is a certain hope, certain hope of future glory for those who are in Christ, Jesus. And the next one's a little hard to understand. We'll have to touch on it when we get to chapter 6, 7, and 8. But here's the truth. Those who have died with Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, and you let his death count for you, that means you have died with Christ. Those who have died with Christ and who enjoy the work of the Holy Spirit are enabled to live a new life. So Christian, hear that this morning. If you say, I do experience the work of the Holy Spirit, then you are enabled to live a new kind of life. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot live the Christian life. Another key theme, this is where it gets all controversial. God is sovereign in salvation. He works all things according to his plan. Chapters 19 and 11 are about the next one. God fulfills his saving promises to both Jews and Gentiles. But all the Jews aren't being saved. I guess the promises of God are nullified. No, they're not. Well, I guess all the promises of God that were said to the Jews in the Old Testament, well, they just roll over on the church in the New Testament. It was really meant about us all along. No, God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And in chapters 12 through 16, we could say is this last thing. The grace of the gospel calls Christians to holiness, to mutual service, good citizenship, U.S. citizens. If you're a good Christian, obey the government. And wholehearted neighbor love in Christ. Those are some themes. I told you that one would be lengthy. Number five, what are the purposes of this book? One is this. Paul's saying, hey, I want to come to Rome. I want to teach you guys. And then when I do minister to you and you minister to me, I'm hoping you'll send me to Spain and you'll support my work and send me as a missionary to Spain because the gospel needs to go on past Italy. It needs to get all the way over to Spain. Another one is this. Here's, a, here's one of the purposes. Is Paul is writing... To head off a controversy. Now here I'm going to ask you to think and say, man, you're getting really academic here. Watch this. Jewish Christians come home from the Pentecost. They come back to Rome. They start these churches. It's all Jewish. But for the next 20 years, just like it happened in Jerusalem and Antioch, all of a sudden the Lord gives the okay. And Gentiles, we, start getting saved and coming into the church. And they realize they don't have to be Jewish to be right with God. And so there's this blend that has taken place. And there's a little bit of friction, but watch. In A.D. 49, we know this happened in history. The emperor Claudius, the most powerful man in, in all of the Roman Empire, the Roman emperor Claudius, kicks all the Jews out of Rome. You have to leave. Why? Because the Jews are squabbling over somebody named Crestus, according to the writing. Crestus. They're fussing and fighting. Well, you know what that is. Some Jews that had not become saved still were looking for the Messiah, and the Christian Jews are saying, we don't need to look for the Messiah. He's already come. His name's Jesus Christ. So they're fighting, and finally Claudius says, I don't care about that. All of you out. Uh-oh. Now here's this new church they started Jewish, they're all forced to leave, and now it's just Gentiles. They don't have Jewish roots, and they're kind of left running things in the house churches. And lo and behold, finally, after a few years later, the Jewish Christians start trickling back into Rome, and now there's some friction. Do we have to do that? Do we have to do that? Can we not do that? Is it wrong for that? And Paul is writing to address that. So really, here's the main thing. Paul is writing a book of doctrine that is going to be the standard for, to ground Christians in their faith and praise the Lord, he wrote this book to the churches at Rome. What's going to be our approach? For this, I'm going to briefly go back. This is important. Way back in August, when we started Psalm 93, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. I gave you five principles. I want to repeat four of them today. If we're getting ready to start a study of the Word of God, I want to propose to you these four principles to get as a mindset. Number one, and you do it right now as we're studying, 
always approach study prayerfully for direction and protection. I'm going to invite you, even as you're writing that word or you're listening, Lord, right now, you don't have to pray out loud, God, I do pray that you will guide us, Lord, that you'll protect us and give us the direction. Lord, don't let Pastor Jeff ever think he already knows on Monday where he's going to end on Friday. Lord, you just lead us in this study where you want us to go and you give us protection. Secondly, Always approach God's will and God's word with a heart determined. God, you show it to me and I'm going to obey. Don't do this. Lord, you show it to me and I'll decide if I'm going to do that. God's not going to reveal his word to you. He's not going to open truth to you if you're kind of saying, I'm going to determine. I'll evaluate if I'm going to obey or not. Go this way, guys. God, you show me I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what your word says. And he'll open it to you, I promise. Number three. This is important. There's a reason I'm pulling this out again as we head into Romans. God and his word are always right. Even when they contradict our natural logic. If you don't settle that in your mind, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we are going to encounter some things in Romans, potentially, that every one of us are going to be, I don't like that. I don't believe that. Based on what? I just don't feel that. Can I go ahead and give you the next one? You say, what is the goal? The goal of study is to know God. The goal of study is to know the God of the Bible. What better way to know God than let him tell us about himself? It's not on the screen, but I'm going to offer this to you. I want you to get what I'm about to say. And we'll we'll agree with this. But I'm going to tell you, when life hits and we start having to evaluate issues, we're going to default the other way. We're going to want to trust our own thinking. Not on the screen, but here's a statement. The true God of the Bible is not the God we would imagine. If you were imagining a God, you say, oh, I'd make him just like this one. I probably wouldn't. There are some things about God that I wouldn't make that way. But here's what I've learned to do. If God says it, then that settles it. It's not up to my opinion. So here's the rule. You say, what's going to be our approach? Our approach is the scriptural one. Let God be true and every man a liar. Lord, whatever you say in your word, we're not going to twist it and wrestle it and make it fit our preconceived notions. Lord, whatever you say about you and about us, you're right, we're wrong, and we need to adjust our thinking to match up with what you have to say. Then the last thing here by this introduction is Paul's text. What is Paul's text here? Every commentary you read would say, Paul has a text. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. You see that? Look at verse 16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power. What's the power? The gospel is the power of God. That's why I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Here comes Paul's text. For in it, what? The gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, here's the text. The righteous, or as I've heard all my life, the just, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Those of you who have a reference Bible, real quick. What's the little, you got a little A or a Z or something there beside it. Follow it over to your center column. You have a reference there. What is that reference? Paul says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's his text. Everything's going to spring from that. What is the Old Testament reference? Anybody see it? Somebody? Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Let's just put that on the screen for a second. Here's Paul's text. He's reading. They didn't have the New Testament. He's reading the Old Testament. Here's what he comes across. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's Paul's text. Hey, I want to touch this quickly. Ready? Paul gets 16 chapters out of three Hebrew words. You see that phrase in Habakkuk? But the righteous shall live by his faith. That is three Hebrew words. In English, it's six words. In Greek, it's six words. Six, you guys think I'm long-winded. Paul gets 16 chapters out of three Hebrew words. You say, yeah, okay, great. What's the point? Can I please beg beg you? If you didn't start reading the Word of God last Sunday as a a 
resolution or a determination in your Christian life, it's not too late. Today's only the 8th day of January, 2017. Start reading the Word of God. But listen to me. Read it slowly and thoughtfully. Please. God may have one phrase, one word, one nugget, and it just lights your world. Please read it thoughtfully. Don't conquer a set of chapters. You say, are you telling us to read just one verse? I'm not saying read one verse. I'm saying it may be one verse that God really has for you that day. And with that in thought in mind, would you look at verse 1? Look at verse 1 with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. If you look at your handout, you already notice, boy, two or three words keep coming up in every point of his outline today. Paul, what's the next word? Called. You see that? That's verse 1. Don't you, don't you get this this morning? Paul was called. Everything in his life flows from him being called. Hey, Christian, listen to me. Have you been called? Hey, Christian, the call of God is a call to salvation, but it is so much more than salvation. When you get saved, everything in life changes. And Paul is basically saying right off the front, you guys don't know me by face. Only 28 of you really know me. Or I know you, we kind of have no mutual friends or whatever. Tell that one, hey, and that one, hey. But most of you do not do not know me. Here's the first thing I want you to know. I am called to be this and this and this. And he points out three things about himself in verse number one. Let's read it again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Called. I'm going to tell you Paul is called to be a servant. Those of you who have been here the last few weeks, several weeks, about a month ago, right out a month ago, we were, had a message. I think that message was learning to give God what he really wants. And in that message, I ask every one of us to evaluate your, their, yourself, and I'm going to invite you to do it again. You have a predominant view toward God. Y'all remember that? What is your predominant view? Oh, he's my, protect, my protector, my provider, he's my healer, he's my savior, he's my Lord, he's my father, he's my husband, I'm the bride of Christ, he's the judge. I ask you, what is your predominant view toward God? You have one, and I have one. I didn't know it at the time, but I probably shouldn't even say this. I think mine lined up biblically. And if you're here and your thought is, he's my best friend. He is your best friend. But a gentleman named William Barclay says, do you know what Paul's favorite words for Christ, his favorite word for Christ. You'll not find it in verse 1, but it is in the first seven verses. Anybody want to, don't say it out loud, because I know we don't want to get the answer wrong. But I want you to think, what was Paul's favorite word for Jesus? His favorite word was Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what his favorite word for God was? His favorite word is God our Father. How do you match up with Paul? Honestly, weeks ago, as I looked at that, if you had asked me, I'd have said, uh, my answer is he's Father and Lord. And now I know the breakdown. It's God the Father and Jesus the Lord. And the word Lord there that Paul is going to use, and he's referencing, look at it, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Barclay goes on and he writes and he says, this term, Lord, carried the idea of absolute master, owner. The person who's the Lord or master owner possesses the thing owned. He's completely, he has complete entitlement to it to do anything he pleases. Guys, here's my point. The dog in your backyard this morning has more rights than the position that Paul was describing he was in with God. Your dog here in the United States in 2017 has more rights than Paul saw himself as having with Jesus Christ. You say, so Paul is saying we're like dogs and Jesus treats us like dogs? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's how he viewed his relationship with God. In the Greek language, thankfully the New Testament was written in Greek, they had six words to describe the servitude. Paul could have used any one of them. He chose the strongest word that had to do with the word. What is it? Anybody? Starts with an S. Not just slave, but, I'm sorry, no, there it is. Sorry, I was supposed to say not just servant, but slave. That's how Paul views himself. The attitude, here's Paul's attitude. I was in a slave market of sin. 
And Jesus, the Lord, paid a high price, his own blood, to purchase me. By the way, he made me and he purchased me. And he's my Lord. He's my master. He's my owner. He has rights to every part of my life. I have no rights. Guys, I'm going to say something. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Your 21st century mind is not going to like what I'm about to say. You're going to buck at it. And I do too. But I want you to put yourself in ancient Rome, frankly, Bible times. Old Testament time. Watch this. If a man was a slave and he gets married, watch that. He gets married and they have children. He knows that wife and that child, those children are never truly his. You say, absolutely they are. He and his wife made those kids. Those kids are his. No, he's a slave. I have no rights to anything I own. I am my master's, she's my master, he lets us get married, and when we have kids, they're the masters. If I gain my freedom, somehow do something so magnanimous or earn enough money to purchase my freedom, my wife and my children don't go with me, they stay, they're the masters. Guys, you say, what are you trying to tell us? Great, Paul's a servant of God. I'm trying to tell you the attitude he wants you to understand is that's God's ownership of you and everything you have. Those kids, they're not yours. You're a steward of them. Your spouse is not yours. You are a steward. You're there to help them hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nothing you have is yours. You say, man, this sounds like a terrible way to live. No, 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 no. Paul says, I'm a bond servant. You say, bond servant, what does that mean? Okay, you bought, you're a slave. No, no, no. Catch this. A bond servant took an attitude of, even if you offered it to me, I don't want my freedom. I want to serve you. I love you. I respect you. I want to serve you. Guys, Can I'm not Paul. <laughs> I'm not Paul. But can I tell you my heart this morning? Watch this. If God were to come see me face to face and say, Jeff, I've got two, two options for you. By the way, Jeff, both door number one and door number two, you're going to go to heaven. You're never going to see hell. You're going to heaven either way. Here's door number one. You'll live this life, and I'm going to leave you alone. And you'll do whatever you want to do. And I'm not going to rebuke you. And I'm not going to convict you. And if you want to go into sin. And I'm never going to ask you to do anything. You just live your life and you'll die. And you're going to wake up in heaven and it's going to be great. And you'll live forever. Now door number two. I'm going to be your Lord. And I'm going to ask some things of you. And I am going to rebuke you when you sin. And when you try to stray, I'm going to bring you back. But you'll know that I love you. And I'm going to have full involvement. I'm going to ask you to sacrifice some things. What would you choose? Guys, I have no doubt. I'm telling you without hesitation. I mean this. Put, it on, put me on a lie detector. If God said, you can be saved and I'll leave you alone, or you can be saved and, and you be my servant, Lord, don't leave me alone. God, let me be your slave because it's the best life there is. The songwriter was correct in the old hymn that says, Living for Jesus. You ever heard that one? Oh, Jesus. Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee. For Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be Thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live, O Christ. For thee alone. You know my favorite line there. I own no other master. You say, he owns you. He owns me and I own him. See, we're 21st century. We think, man, nobody would take pride or pleasure in being a servant. I say it's whose servant are you. That's the key. Those guys that are secret service... I'll promise you their mamas and daddies don't hang, they hang their head. Hey, whatever happened to Johnny? Oh, Johnny's a servant. Ooh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, he serves the president of the United States. What? He's the secret servant. Johnny's secret servant? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's Johnny. You know what Paul's saying? I'm a servant. That's the first thing I want you to know about me. And if you think that's derogatory, if you think, man, wouldn't you rather be called a rabbi, Paul? Yeah, before I got saved, I wanted to be a rabbi. Now I just want to be a servant. Because when you see him, you'll know nothing better than being his servant. That's what it's all about. 
Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Not only is he called to be a servant, he's called to be sent. Sent. Paul's called to be an apostle. He doesn't volunteer for it. He's not elected for it. By the way, this is a very special calling. You say, well, there's a guy up in Greenville. Yeah, whatever. This is a special, special calling. The nation of Israel, of all the nations, Israel is special. Listen to me. Of all the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi was special. You have all these crops. The first fruits are special. They're designated. The first son that's born, he's for the Lord. He's designated. You're going to make an offering in behalf of him. They're specially designated. You know what Paul's saying? Listen, I didn't choose it. He chose me. I've been called to be a sent one. An apostle is one who is sent in behalf of another. You say, so can anybody be an apostle? New Testament gives us three criteria. Number one, he has to have seen, to be an apostle, he has to have seen the resurrected Christ. That's made clear in Acts chapter 1. To be an apostle... He has to have been personally called by Christ. If you're in Romans 1, literally like three or four pages back, you'll find Acts 26. Go back to Acts 26 just for a second. Was Paul personally called by Christ to be an apostle? Acts 26, he's talking about the day he got saved. I'm not going back to verse 14, but he's talking about, man, when Jesus showed up, I was going to persecute Christians up in Damascus. He knocked me down to the ground, me and the whole group that was with me. Verse 15, watch this. Verse number 15, if I can find it. And I said, here comes Jesus, knocks him down. And I said, who are you, Lord? So there's his word. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Right there, Paul's gears are flying. I thought you were dead. How are you talking to me if you're dead? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. How am I persecuting you? I'm just going up here to kill some Christians. You're killing them? It's persecuting me? What are you doing? You're persecuting me. I'm Jesus. Verse 16, but rise. Stand upon your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people. Paul, I'm going to deliver you from your own people. They're going to try to kill you. And from the Gentiles. Oh, by the way, the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Why? What's my job with them? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says, he called me, he knocked me down, he blinded me, he told me very clearly, not only am I saving you, but I'm calling you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to be special. Those 12 are for the nation of Israel. You are for the Gentile world. You're special, Paul. And then he taught him and trained him. You say, did Paul obey? Did Paul go? One other passage, this will be the last one we'll look at in today's message, other than looking back at Romans 1.1. Would you go to 2 Corinthians? We talked earlier about Corinthians. Later on, Paul will be in this city after he's written this second epistle to them. He'll be there writing Romans. But this actually goes back before he's writing Romans. So look at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Just see the background very quickly. Paul... His apostleship's being challenged. People are saying he's not really the man of God. These other guys that have come behind him, they're false teachers and they're claiming to be the men of God. And again, not on the screen, but you know what Paul says? Here's what Paul says. You've got to get the setting or otherwise what he's about to say is not going to make sense. He's saying, hey, those other false teachers, they make slaves out of you guys and you let it happen. They beat you up. They hit you in the face. They walk around with airs like they're something. Well, I'm sorry I didn't do that. I'm sorry I wasn't an abusive leader. So now you see verse number 21. Very sarcastic. I like sarcasm. I don't advise it. I need to limit it. I get it. Some don't get it. They're like, and somebody's like, are you kidding? kidding?" Oh. Verse 21, Paul's very sarcastic. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Yeah, I I did not abuse you. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, here it goes. You see this line? I'm speaking as a fool. Paul's saying, I hate to do this. 
But since you're questioning my apostleship and my authority, I am going to defend myself. I do not want to do this. But those guys are saying they're the real thing and I'm the fake. Whatever, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. They want to have a contest? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors. Well, they say they've done labor for Christ. I've done far greater labors. You want me to have to say it? I'm telling you, I'm the real deal. They're not. Far more imprisonments. They ever been in prison for the cause of Christ? I've had many. With countless beatings and often near death. Often near death. That's kind of where he lived. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times they took a whip and hit him 39 times. Five different occasions. They ever been whipped like that for the cause of Christ? Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Gentiles. Once I was stoned. Huge stones. Against the head. Left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea for the cause of Christ. On frequent journeys. Did Paul ever go when God said to be sent? Did he go? On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, the Jews. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. By the way, I thought this. ABC, what do you want? You want to be in a dangerous city on a bad street? You want to be stuck out in the wilderness by yourself? You say, well, I'm not, I don't have great survival skills. Or you want to be at danger in the sea? You're like, those are some real stinky options. You want to be in a bad, bad neighborhood, one around when everybody's going to, and a group of people over there at the end of the corner, and a group there, and some opening their doors and windows, and all of a sudden, here they come out. You want to be in that? You want to be stuck by yourself in the wilderness? Or you want to be in danger out in the sea? And Paul's like, that's where I live. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. You remember, remember the other day when you didn't sleep the other night, right? Paul's like, I've had many of those. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the church. All this care. Not a sinful anxiety, but a desire. I care, I'm burdened. So guys, here's my point. When God called him to be a sent one, it was not glory, glamorous. I am an apostle. It was a tough life. Romans 1, lastly. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's called to be set apart. Called to be a servant. Called to be sent. Called to be set apart. I need to talk about this just for a moment. We ready? We here set apart, we here separated, and here's what we do. Oh, yeah, separated, Christian, separated. They're separated from the world and from sin. Absolutely, Paul has that in mind. I I, I want you to get this. But Paul is saying so much more than being separated from sin. Sin's over there, I'm over here. More than that. Yes, separated from, but Paul is saying separated to. Separated for. Okay, what does that mean? For, from, to, ah, I'm not great with prepositions. You have these tools, right? These utilities, and they're sterling. They're ah, stainless. That's what it were. They're stainless steel, right? They're in a drawer. But some are taken out and cleaned very, very, just sanitized, and they're set on a tray. They're apart from the other ones. They are not brought out and separated from the others and cleaned just to go in another drawer. No, they're going on a tray because they're going to be used for, they are being separated to operate on someone. They're clean tools, clean instruments. Say, okay. What Paul is saying is, yes, I am to be a clean instrument for the Lord, separated from sin, but not just separated from everybody and everything. I'm separated for something. I'm separated to something. 
You say, why are you saying this? Guys, here's what I found. I find a lot of Christians who think the goal of Christianity is to be separate from everybody. I'm going to borrow Doug. I'm going to separate Doug. Doug, Doug, come on up. He's going to hate this. There. They're all bad sinners. I need, yeah, I needed you away from them, bro. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be contaminated by all them. And that's what some people think Christianity is. Well, I'm, the, I'm way over here and they're way over there. They're sinners, yeah, and I don't want to be contaminated. You want to know what, you don't want to know what Jesus says? My people are in the world. They're in the world. But not of the world. Separated from, but separated to. Look at this note. Jesus says his people are to be in the world, but not of the world. Why? He says we are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt preserves. Salt adds flavor. Salt makes people thirsty. You can't do any of those things until the salt's made contact. You're the salt. That's what God's calling you to. I guess one of the regrets, I've worked construction in the summers for years when I was teaching and I worked construction with my dad some. One of the regrets I have, and I, I just, I won't go into it a lot, but it didn't take long when I'd hit these summer jobs. It was usually construction. It didn't take long for the guys to figure out, oh, that guy's a preacher, and he doesn't talk like us, and he doesn't kind of mingle with us, and he doesn't go hang out with us afterward. And that was all fine and great. And I'd usually earn a nickname. My last one was Rev. Hey, Rev. And that's fine. I wish I'd have made a little more contact. I wish I'd made a little more contact. Not just be the guy, yeah, he don't talk like us. He's over there. That's not what we're called to do. Hey, look, can you do this? Can you do that note? God wants you to be separated from sin in the world, but not of the world. Not, so in the midst of sinners, but not contaminated by their sin. Can you do that in your, in your family? Because everybody in my family, man, they're lost, and I am just not... Maybe you need to be in there, but maintain a separation. But in the midst of having an influence. You know what I'm saying? So so often I've heard this all my life. Christian separation is about clothing. Hairlines and hemlines. Almost as though we go to Belk and as soon as they see us, oh, I see you want the Christian section. The Christian section is right over there. Or we go and we sit down at the barber or the beauty salon and they're like, oh, you want the Christian cut again? Yep, give me the Christian cut. (laughs) Here's the other one I hear. Separation. The way you look externally and the music. And how many beats does it have, you know, per section? And what's the rhythm? That sounds wonderful. The only problem, it is not in here. It is not in here. You say, then what? How are we different? Aren't we supposed to like immediately? Like, oh, you're a Christian. Yep, I'm a Christian. You know? Oh, that guy, I see he's a Christian. No. Oh, you got the, yeah, that guy's a Christian. You say, how are we different? Here's how you're different. When you're with your family and you're in your neighborhood and down at work and everybody else is gossiping and slandering, and unforgiving you're not you're quick to forgive you don't join in the gossip today you're wasting your time telling her she doesn't get involved in it in fact she kind of makes you feel guilty for doing it she just loves everybody good now you're in the world but not of the world it's not external it's just they love and they have wisdom and they don't envy and covetous they're satisfied and they have peace and joy and when bad things happen to us, we go all to pieces and we blame everybody else. And they turn to their Lord and they just keep on having joy. That's different. That's separated. I know my time's done. I'm, can I share this? I, said, I talked about instruments a while ago. Let's change to an instrument. As Christians, we're called to be an instrument. Make music. Make a joyful sound with your life. You are the instrument. I want you to get this. You're the instrument. And I find two kinds of Christians. Thankfully, there's a third type, and that's where we want to be. But here's, here's the first Christian. I want to serve the Lord, and I'm ready to make music. And off they go, serving in that and that and that. Here's the problem. They're way out of tune. 
They never spend time with God. They have so much unconfessed sin. Their instrument is not polished. It is not clean. But boy, I'm ready to go represent Christ. And they're out of tune with the Lord trying to make music with their life. Here's the other one. Boy, they're clean. They're polishing. They got that. Boy, they're in tune. They got their devotions. They go to church and they give and they pray. They got a deep walk with the Lord. Here's the problem. They never play. What do you do for the Lord? Well, I don't do that and I don't do that and I don't do that. Okay, good. What do you do for the Lord? can't think of one thing real shiny in tune ready don't ever play others out playing sour notes giving God a bad name because their life doesn't match the message you know what Paul says I'm called to be a servant yes and I'm sent into this world I'm first set apart. First thing, I'm set apart from sin, but to minister to them. Your last note. The Great Commission is inherently cyclical and reproductive. Cyclical and reproductive. Go make converts. Get them to go public. Get them baptized. Watch this. Teach them to observe all things. All things whatsoever. That means once you get them saved and baptized, you start training them how to go make more disciples. This Wednesday night, if at all possible. Grace for you, Lucy. You say, I don't even go to church here. I'm not a member here. If at all possible, meet with us in the Student Connection Building. We don't need 20 people over there training how to share our faith. Let's all get in tune. Let's get our life clean, set apart, and for something. You're here to be not a monument, a witness. Could you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed. Would you close your eyes for a moment? No one really looking around. No one looking around. I want to ask you, have you heard the call of God? Have you ever heard the call of God? Boy, Paul did, loud and clear. I'll just share with you. I heard the call of God when I was nine years old. I heard it again when I was 12. He called me into his service uniquely. At nine years old, he called me to salvation. And I've heard that call, similar calls, many times since. This morning, I really want you to block everything else out. And I, I prayed earlier that God, and I'm going to ask you again, Lord, let us have a God encounter. I want to ask you, every person, what is God calling you to right now? Listen. Lord, what are you calling me to? Is he calling you to salvation? Who's he calling to salvation this morning? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. If you were to answer that call to salvation, I did that when I was nine. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that will be at the same time the hardest thing you've ever done easiest thing you've ever done it's the easiest thing you've ever done because Jesus does all the saving but the hardest thing is you letting go of the reins of your life and trying to save yourself because you can never do it you may say you don't understand the things I've done can never be forgiven no you don't understand how powerful Jesus death on the cross is the easiest thing in the world is just literally right now say, God, please save me from my sins, Lord. I need it right now. I'm asking you. And you can't lie. I beg you, would you please save me? Easiest thing you've ever done, but the hardest thing you've ever done at the same time. You've got to let go. You cannot save yourself. I'm not asking, wonder if. I'm wondering who. It's not a matter of if, but who. What Christian or Christians are here this morning and the Lord is calling you to separation? You're, you're a great volunteer. You, you go out and you work for the Lord. But here's the truth. Here's the fact. You don't have a lot of private time with God worshiping Him and you're not taught in private by the Lord. And you've got a lot of unconfessed sin. And 
and the Lord's saying, I want you to serve me. I want you to go play. But let's get into it. If you're going to carry my name, I want you to be right with me. Be my ambassador. Keep serving, but separate from sin. This again, it's not a matter of I wonder if, but I wonder which of us here today you say, no, Brother Jeff, I confess my sins about every day and I read the Word of God and I have a prayer life and I'm pretty faithful at church, but I can hardly think of anything that I actually do for the Lord other than not participating in things that are sinful. God's calling you to service today. Will you answer the call? Lord, call us. Be real clear, Lord. If someone's called to salvation today, give them boldness to take the step they need. Lord, if someone's called to separation, they need to get serious about their time with you and about being separated from sin before they go out into the world as a sent one. Lord, I pray that you would call very clearly. And Lord, if some have a deeper walk, but it hasn't resulted in service, Lord, I pray you would call them this morning. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing together. If the Lord's calling you to salvation, I'm going to beg you, come on down here and I'll get somebody else to close the service. If you're a man, you and I will go and we'll talk and let's settle that today. If you're a lady, we'll get one of these ladies. My wife will stop singing. She has to. And she can go talk with you. We have other ladies. If the Lord is calling you to separation, maybe you need to come and just kneel down and say, God, I want you just to make me clean and I want, then I want to serve you. Lord's calling you to service and say, hey, Lord, show me what you want me to get busy at. The altar is available. I'm here if I can help you.